Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, November the 17th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today to look at the key issues of the week are Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political staff. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning, Hugh. When I say I look at the issues today, we're largely going to look at... Uh, COVID, Jack, last night, Michal Martin um, stepped up again and announced a number of changes in the advice and the regulations for businesses and individuals over the next few weeks. So we're kind of back into it. Your Inside Politics email digest this morning, which I'd recommend to all our listeners, says, and I quote, many tiny steps forward and then a couple of steps back that could mark a whole new departure for COVID in Ireland. This is Act 7 or something at this point, is it? I think we've all lost count, yeah. I mean, how many times have we been in this situation where um, we have the drumbeat of, of kind of, you know, troubling uh, news emanating from the healthcare system and or an effort, followed by a bunch of crunch meetings uh, between public health advisors and governments and government uh, culminating in um, a man standing in front of a podium and giving us uh, some shade of, of bad news, or uh, at least not not fantastic news. And we had another another one last night. The, the reason why I think this is important is um, that if you run us all the way back, um, the guts of a year to the, the start of 2021, uh, there was a there was a new departure then in in COVID policy. There was a new kind of uh, consensus that emerged in the wake of last Christmas's disaster and the associated impact on the health care system in January and February of this year. And that new departure effectively threw out uh, the five level plan that was um, established in September of twenty twenty, and. Um, replaced it with a kind of broad uh, incrementalism whereby we would take these little steps that I referred to in, in the mail this morning towards unlocking. Um, we would stand back and assess how they went and if things didn't go to hell in a handbasket, we might take the next one. And all the while we'd be waiting for the cover of vaccine protection. And that was largely speaking, largely speaking, an, an, a, an effective strategy across this year. Um, the problem is that now uh, we see, we seem to have reached a level of disease circulating um, in the population where you have a fundamental threat to the healthcare system again. And we're facing basically the same problem that we did in March 2020. We don't have enough beds. Um, too many people are getting sick. And the healthcare system is uh, sending up a series of very alarming flares and the political system has to has to respond to that. And that means for the first time in the guts of a year, we're taking steps backwards as opposed to standing still or going 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 forwards in a very slow way, and I think that that's a a really difficult challenge for the government. Um, it's a really difficult thing to figure out. You know, how big are those steps we take? We take we take back. Are they the only ones? What are the thresholds for further action? What are the other steps that we might take? You know, do we shutter sections of the economy again? Do we try and uh, restrict household visits? All those things that 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 characterize the first phase of COVID? Um, or do we try and knuckle down and rely on personal behaviors, people pulling the horns in themselves and get through this winter 
uh, with the, the the age of a, a widespread booster campaign. Uh, these are all imponderables, but they're they're very pressing imponderables because the fact of the matter is that um, the disease profile is so serious at the moment um, that the pressure on on the HSE and on the hospitals isn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon for at least the next several weeks over the Christmas period and into the new year. So there's a very delicate balance to be struck by the government on effectively Christmas policy. And that's what we're in the first phase of now. The decisions that were taken yesterday will be assessed over a period of the next two to three weeks. Two to three weeks from now will be into December. The decisions that are taken then will encompass the Christmas period. So that's the phase we're in now. And I don't get the sense, and I don't think Jen gets the sense either, that you know the government has a clear idea of what to do next. So it's kind of back to the future heading into December with a lot of danger, a lot of risk and no clear sense that we know exactly how to manage our way out of this other than carpet bombing people with boosters, which is a pretty good idea um, as and when we get the supplies and uh, regulatory advice to do so. Yeah, we might come to the boosters in a moment. But first, Jen, that all said, the the measures announced yesterday are, are relatively modest, I suppose, unless you're unless you work for a nightclub um, for the most part. Um, the the advice has changed somewhat on 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 going back to the office or going back to work. Don't do it if you can. But uh, in my experience, including my experience in the Irish Times, a lot of companies haven't actually gone back to the office anyway. So I'm not sure how much effect that that is really going to have. A few other adjustments around things like um, the regulations surrounding presenting your your COVID pass at cinemas and theatres. You have to do that anyway, as far as I'm concerned. It's only been codified. So this is not a big bang in any way. And in fact, it's the kind of relatively modest measures which we're seeing being introduced across Western Europe, most of the countries of which are seeing a spike right now. Yeah, you're right. It's not like, a, you know, sweeping restrictions, a vast swathe of new kind of lockdown measures. It's it's not along that ilk at all. Um, like you said, it's late bars, nightclubs closing earlier, or as the government call it, a curfew, um, cinemas and theatres requiring COVID passes. And I agree with you, I was in a cinema on Monday and I was asked for my COVID pass because we know they had the choice previously between having 100% capacity and everybody showing their vaccine cert or having, I think it was 50% capacity and vaccinated in with unvaccinated people. And many outlets, I think, chose to go for having the higher capacity naturally after being closed for so very long. Um, And then obviously we have one or two other measures that were announced. This includes uh, people being asked to restrict their movements if they live with a uh, contact of a confirmed case. Um, And then obviously the other measures are around the booster shots, which you mentioned there. They'll be rolled out to people over 50 and and people under 50 with underlying conditions uh, six months after their most recent dose. So there, there's, there, it's, I suppose you could say it's, it's somewhat tinkering at the edges in terms of the restrictions. Um, but I think what, I think it was very evident watching Michal Martin during his press conference, how uncomfortable he was, how much it clearly grates on him to have to announce the big, his big reopening plan that once everything he announced reopens, that it would stay open. I think you remember him saying that, that they were the proviso. That's why he did it so slowly. And for him to have to come out basically and say, we're going backwards, uh, you can tell that it grated on him. And it was, from what I could see, actually quite a tetchy press conference, um, which actually isn't that unusual for Michal Martin generally. He can be a bit tetchy, but uh, yeah, you, you could see that on him. And I think really what happened here was that if you cast your mind back to, it's not that long ago, but September and October, the government's plan was basically that they would move away from a system of restrictions, which was kind of in line with what was happening internationally, and moved from that 
system of regulation to a system of personal responsibility. And the idea will be that if cases rose and if things are moving in the opposite direction, we would all use our personal responsibility and decide to cut back our socialisation, that we would look at the figures and we would make these decisions for ourselves. Now, that clearly has not happened because uh, what the NEFET have said is that the levels of socialisation are only increasing. They're pointing towards massive increases in terms of people's close contacts. And they have research as well and behavioural research, which shows that people aren't necessarily taking on board their messaging of wearing a mask more or cutting down those contacts. So that's the kind of the, the backstory between how we came to where we are now. Last week then, in the middle of last week, I was chatting to someone, I think it was Wednesday in government, and they were saying a Neffet are meeting tomorrow, Thursday. And I said, is this a big deal? Like, is, are we going to, you know, do we have more restrictions on the horizon? And I noted how anxious they were. Um, and obviously, we'd keep an eye on those really, really um, high surging figures. So then, of course, what happened at the weekend was that the Neffet sat down and apparently worked all through the weekend to come up with this new modelling. And this new modelling was presented to two ministers on Monday night in the Cabinet Subcommittee. And it kind of terrified them. Um, it was described, I think Jack had a piece describing uh, government sources as describing as grim and concerning. And we've heard those words before, actually, this time last year. Um, and they th- that modelling showed two scenarios, optimistic and pessimistic. It could range from 5,000 cases a day next month to 12,000 cases a day. It's a big difference there. And what, it, what that modelling did for the first time was factor in waning immunity. Now, the question could be asked, why didn't they do this before? Israel have shown, Israel has data that shows that immunity does wane, um, you know, a certain amount of months after you get the vaccine. But I think the fact of the matter is we're still so early into the pandemic. We're still learning about the vaccine. You know, most of us only got our vaccine a couple of months ago when you think about it. So anyway, they factored this waning immunity into their uh, models. And that's what spooked them so much that they've come out to, I suppose, uh, introduce uh, a small number of new restrictions. And the last thing I'll say on that is, I was watching and listening carefully to some of the things Michal Martin was saying last night and I thought it was notable that he didn't specifically say it but he he sort of hinted that Tony Holohan and the Neffet will be coming back with more recommendations uh, soon. I got the impression that they might come back as early as next week with perhaps more recommendations and if that goes further than what the government want if they want to give this three weeks is what, they, what they've said then we're back into that really tricky territory of Neffet say, what did the government do? Um, and that leads you into your whole debate about Christmas. And not only that, we're into the whole recurring calendar thing. We've either got a Groundhog Day thing going on here, Jack, with coming up to Christmas, as you said earlier, with all the, the challenges that that provides in terms of how people interact over the over the course of that period. Certainly, as Jen says, this idea that you just hand it over to personal responsibility and that people would react in reaction to it, to what what the reports were saying about the numbers clearly isn't true. Or maybe it just takes time, you know, that really only three or four weeks ago, we were looking at those queues outside Copperface Jacks for the first time in a year. You know, last week we were looking at two full houses in, in Lansdowne Road for, for football and rugby matches. Maybe part of the function of these announcements today, or rather yesterday, is as a signal to people to please start changing their own personal responsibility rather than thinking that, you know, closing nightclubs is going to have that much of an impact. I think that's true. uh, And I think that's certainly very much the hope, nay, the strategy in government um, arising from yesterday. Uh, Because let's be honest here, uh, you know, neither of the things that they, uh, the three measures really that they identified yesterday, the nightclubs, the um, isolation uh, for COVID positive households, 
um, and the uh, whatever the third one was, <laughs> I can't remember off the top of my head. Neither of those are going to really move the dial by themselves. What the what the hope is is that people will uh, intuit or perceive that the situation has gotten very bad very quickly again and adjust their behaviour accordingly. Um, anecdotes are not good data, but nonetheless, here's some anecdotes. Um, I noticed in my own social circle and, and just in a wider browse of social media uh, over the last 24 hours, a lot more activities and events being uh, scaled back or cancelled or curtailed, uh, people talking about Christmas parties not going ahead and all the rest of it. So I think that that, that does uh, suggest at least um, that it that the message has landed uh, to a greater or lesser extent. Um, I, I think that, you know, it doesn't change really the calculus for the next little while though because there's so much, the hospitals are already in so much difficulty. And um, when things started to go bad in the summer, there was this figure circulated that above 400 COVID patients in hospital becomes very problematic. And um, we passed that some time ago. Uh, we have remained above that level and will remain above that level. And it seems that uh, numbers in ICU in particular are heading north of 100 and towards the 150 mark that Leo Varadkar previously identified as an important threshold for meaningful intervention. So I think that there's the, the, the direction of travel here is, is, largely, is largely baked in over the next few weeks. Um, and whether that kind of behavioural signal is picked up and whether behavioural change is profound enough uh, and, and, and meaningful enough to um, reverse that trend, I suppose, is, is the open question. Um, and, and much like the government, I don't know whether it will be. Um, and that's why there's just so much uncertainty washing around the system as of now. Well, let's turn to a couple of things, Jen. Um, and, I, and I know it's very easy to point fingers in these regards. And actually, my own opinion at this stage is that the causes underlying these the, the, these trends are, are far more complex than there being one or two simple answers for them. But, you know, it is a fact that Ireland is an outlier when it comes to using antigen tests in certain kinds of situations in order to screen much larger parts of the population uh, who are going to work or going to school or going to college or whatever it might be. And that the Irish medical establishment has been highly resistant to that uh, for more than a year. And in fact, has gone further than that. It's been quite, has poo-pooed their, their use at all. And they've been described as snake oil. And now very, very late in the day, we seem to be turning around and looking at a greater rollout of antigen tests. Uh, Simon Carswell has a very good piece in the Irish Times this morning about how antigen tests are used in a food processing plant in Kildare and how effective they've been as a, as a screening uh, system against, uh, against an outbreak in, in that plant. And you could see how that could have been rolled out across much wider parts of Irish society had it not been for that resistance. Yeah, you remind me there of that comment uh, about snake oil. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? Even looking back on it now, um, especially knowing what we know and the fact that we're moving more towards antigen testing. Here's my read of what's happened. And I could be wrong, but I've done a bit of research on it and I don't think I am wrong. Um, what I think has happened is what we know already from the beginning uh, is is that Nenefet have been opposed to antigen testing. Tony Holohan has been opposed to antigen testing. And when he explained it before, he talked about how an antigen test in the wrong hands um, w- simply won't be effective. It won't be reliable. That people who don't use it properly, um, it's it's not as reliable, obviously, as a PCR test anyway. But then when you factor in that additional kind of it not being used properly, to him, I suppose, maybe it made it redundant. Um, I think over the last couple of months, what has happened is that the Nefed and Tony Holohan have held on to that resistance. So that's their opinion. That's their belief. Um, and from what I've heard, 
Stephen Donnelly has been on the other side of the fence and has been pushing for antigen testing, um, along with other members of government who very clearly see a role for this in society. And I think that work was ongoing behind the scenes, regardless of the Neffet's um, objection to it. Um, and that's why we see now these plans coming out for, for subsidised testing. So then last week, then, when you know we're all digging around in the middle of the night and first thing on Friday morning to find out what this Neffet letter said, and then it emerged that it recommended or that it noted recommendation um, for people who are engaging in high risk activities. Their phrase, not mine. I guess they mean, you know, socialisation, nightclubs, people who go out a lot, I suppose, and socialise a lot, that they should take two antigen tests per week, um, a minimum of two antigen tests per week, per week. And I remember on Friday then there was kind of a lot of commentary and people saying, oh, well, I see the na- I see the effort have come around. I see they finally seen the light of day on antigen testing. Um, but that's clearly actually not the case because... At the press briefing last night, Michal Martin was asked, you know, why haven't you, you know, this antigen test and subsidised test idea was been floated all throughout the weekend. Um, I spoke to somebody on Friday who definitely left me with the impression that this is a very well advanced plan ready to be uh, unveiled. And Michal Martin said last night that, yes, they're working on it and it, it'll be imminent. But he specifically said that the uh, medical experts, I don't think he specifically said Tony Holham, but he said the Neffet that they had a concern around this and kind of I was listening to this thinking, aha, okay. And he said their concern is that people, again, won't know how to use it properly. So what the government are going to do is roll out this communications campaign to tell people how to use an antigen test properly, even though the vast majority of us who've used them probably do know how to use it properly in as much as we can. Um, And so they're going to roll out this campaign first. And that my impression is that's to assuage the doubts and concerns of the NAFIT. And then the antigen test. So I don't think they've come all the distance that, you know, some people have speculated. I think actually there's still a lot of resistance to it. But regardless, this plan will go ahead. But it's extraordinary that we are still talking about rolling out antigen testing in December 2021. And also it's not rocket science to figure out that education um, plan because lots of other European countries and the UK as well have already done that. And so you know where the pitfalls are, you know, where the information shortfalls are, you know the best way to get that information out. So it does sound exactly what you're saying, that that resistance is still there. Yeah, exactly. And these are not scientific statistics, but let's just take, for example, if these tests only catch six out of 10 cases, let's say, you know, is that six people who would have gone out, who you know, to a nightclub or a pub or a restaurant, then not going out. Well, surely there are statistics that we should take. Every case, you know, that's identified that wouldn't have otherwise been identified is surely a win, given the situation we're in now. Like, look, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a public health expert, so, you know, my opinion on the, the where-tos and the why-fours of, of antigen testing as part of pandemic policy are basically worthless. Um, but... What I would say is that I think I think that the, the concern about antigen was less located in, in its kind of its general use and more located in, in in what it might or might not unlock. And the idea in the first half of this year was more that like an, an inherently risky activity that would otherwise not be allowed may be unlocked by antigen testing. And I think that's what a lot of the hostility within the HSC and NEFIT emanated from. And now we're talking about it actually subtly, but but rather importantly different use, which is that risky activities are generally allowed and antigen is part of a tool to try and maybe de-risk them a little bit. And I think there's there's probably less hostility to that. And I think that's maybe why you've seen parts of the healthcare infrastructure come around. But they, there is, I think, a more fundamental issue around antigen testing, which is that it, it's not a silver bullet. 
Um, and there has been a kind of perception within the political system and within the wider kind of population as well, perhaps to attach all our hopes and dreams to this latest thing, you know, and, and, and there's part of the wider kind of psychology of the pandemic at work here, you know, that, that when things are bad, we look for the thing that can come and emancipate us from all this misery. And, and the latest thing is, well, we, we haven't used antigen testing. And, and, and maybe if we use antigen testing now, it'll all be okay. And that's that's the kind of point of the 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 news cycle or the the broader kind of COVID psychodrama that that we're at around now, you know. So I I don't think that anything apart from vaccines uh, by themselves has is, has has proved to be anything approaching a silver bullet. And I don't think that if we introduce antigen at a kind of substantial scale, that it'll make really that much of a meaningful difference. Because if if someone was doing that successfully somewhere around the world already, we'd know about it and we'd all be doing it anyway. No, I do take a point, but I almost push back against the no silver bullet thing. I'm sick of being told that things aren't aren't silver bullets. I never believed there was a bloody silver bullet in the first place. And I do wonder how many people out there have this kind of religious obsession with, with this mythical silver bullet and how many people accept that this is a complicated problem and there are a range of you know, solutions, none of which is going to be completely effective in its own right. The solution, as we know, that's that's had the best effect is vaccines. And we do have information now, particularly from Israel. I was reading a piece in Haaretz just before we started recording this. You know, going back to, you know, the middle of the summer, really, they started, because they had been so early with their initial vaccine rollout, they started seeing waning immunity and they moved into a booster situation, um, I think in August or certainly by September. And they're really seeing a positive effect from that now. And I, I suppose my question really is now, the, the other part of the announcement yesterday was that um, boosters or a third shots or be rolled out to a much larger part of the population, everybody over 50, along with people who work for the health service, along with people with underlying conditions. So that's a that's a pretty big slice of the population in total. It's certainly, I would have thought off the top of my head, it's about 1 to 1.5 million or something like that. Um, is the, are, are the systems all in place still there to roll out at the speed that the vaccine program was rolling out at its peak back in uh, back in late spring, early summer? I think more or less, uh, yes, that is the case. Um, and the HSE made made a, a very public virtue of that. And they've been talking about the fact that they've retained what they call their, their infrastructure for this. Um, so, I mean, I, li- I live just down the road from Croke Park and I saw them putting the signs up yesterday morning and lo and behold, there were there were people queuing up to get their boosters yesterday evening. So I think that, that I'm certainly not picking up any... Um, fundamental or systemic problem around setting up that kind of high volume model again. I think there might be little changes. There may be more focus on the pharmacies this time out than there was the last time out. But uh, while the, the the background music to this is always, can we go faster? We must go faster. I think we'll be going pretty fast, pretty quickly. I think the, the, the bigger question is, could we have started earlier? And do we have an appropriate kind of regulatory um, mechanism to facilitate uh, early and often uh, booster campaigns across the across the population, and does NIAC move quickly enough? That's the National Immunisation Advisory Committee. Um, is it a kind of modern, fit for purpose structure? Um, if you're going to be doing these really important vaccination campaigns once every four to six months, um, or does it need modernising, resourcing, reorganisation? And and those I think are the kind of conversations that have been happening in government and perhaps will be happening uh, with more intent over the next little while because booster campaigns will be part of life, I think, for the next 18, 24 months um, because I don't see COVID going anywhere after this winter and probably not after next winter either. Because there has been a lot of frustration 
among politicians about NIAC and the speed of NIAC's decisions, hasn't there, John? Yep, there has been. Um, and we've seen that actually over the last couple of months um, that the questions get asked, where, where's the next stage of the vaccination campaign now? How have the NIAC about why haven't they, why isn't, isn't the government putting pressure on them? And when we go digging around, myself and Jack and Pat and everyone else on the team, we always pick up the same thing of, yeah, well, you know, we wish they would move faster, basically, but, you know, they're meeting next Monday and they'll deliberate for a couple of weeks. Um, and I guess the impatience has been because the pandemic hasn't been a slow process. When things change, they change really, really quickly. And we need to have that kind of very nimble response across all the different arms of the state. And um, that will be one of them, uh, a really big part of it, actually, when you consider their role in, in terms of the vaccination campaign. Um, but just to go back just briefly to one of the things you were mentioning about antigen testing, um, you know, I think if you're going to ask people to take personal responsibility, then you should give them all of the tools to do that. And in my mind, an antigen test is not foolproof, but it's one of those, you know, one of those tools you can have in your armory. But I think like overall, what we've learned over the last 24 hours, over the last weekend, is that, and one thing I picked up really strongly, is that nobody has any idea where this is going. Nobody knows for sure what the situation is going to be in three weeks. And they suspect that actually the situation in three weeks will be kind of predetermined because it'll be the result of everything that's happened over the last couple of weeks and now at the moment in in terms of various different uh, things in in relation to the reopening. Um, so does that leave them in a place then in three weeks time where actually they're they're supposed to, maybe they would have hoped that they'd be able to say things are okay, we don't need to reintroduce any further restrictions or will the numbers still be so high that they'll be under pressure to clamp down ahead of Christmas because I think the last thing that they want, the very, very last thing is a repeat of last Christmas especially Micheál Martin. I think for him to have one meaningful Christmas under the belt was awful and bad for, you know, probably the worst blot on his copybook. To do it twice, I think, would be unthinkable. But this is a real challenge, isn't it, for, for democracies, Jack? Because they, they don't, politicians and political leaders don't like operating in this way. They don't like admitting they don't know what's going to happen or they don't know what they're going to do about the thing that they don't know if it's going to happen or not. So it sort of breaks their system in a way. I'm looking in Germany where there's a lot of self-flagellation going on about the fact that they don't have a, a new government in place and regional governments aren't stepping up at the speed that they should. It's, it, it's a real challenge because it doesn't fit into the way normal political discourse usually usually operates. Yeah, like a lot, of, a lot of politics is about convincing voters that you know what's going to happen into the, into the future and you have a plan for it. Um, and that's kind of the, the compact that exists between voters and governments. Um, and, and when you have politicians more or less kind of saying, giving a shrug and saying, I don't know what's coming, <laughs> it, it's, it's damaging to that. Um, and, and I think that, that COVID really fries the circuits of, of, of particularly liberal democracies everywhere. Um, it didn't in the first phase as much because I think that like, you know, systems of government, systems of healthcare and all the rest of it, they, they react pretty well to, or well, you know, maybe not st in a stellar way, but like they, they, they can confront emergencies um, and react to emergencies and deploy all their tools to try and tackle an emergency when it really is kind of existential. Um, what's, what's much more difficult is when you have long running crises that kind of interfere with your normal systems for decision making like the NIAC example is a good is a good the NIAC thing is a good example of that you know that's how we decide on safe vaccines but it's it, it does it doesn't seem to be suited to the COVID situation you know um, and and it also interferes with um, all the kind of rough uh, n n the, all the kind of rough 
ways in which we achieve kind of fudges and political consensuses and all the rest of it because pandemic policy often often has to be binary it has to be a decision on or off closed or open you know and and that again fries the circuits of you know the the, the consensus forming um processes within within democracies and within government and that's why this is such a kind of corrosive and grinding crisis uh in so many ways because you know the system uh the center for want of a better phrase doesn't really know how to handle it it, it, do, it doesn't handle things like this well all right, we're going to we're going to take a break here. But before we do, uh, I should say that uh, while I'm deeply opposed in principle to the nonsense that is Black Friday and its sales, I am going to make uh, an exception this week because the Irish Times has its own Black Friday offer and it runs from Monday next, the 22nd of November, until midnight, the witching hour on Monday, the 29th of November. During that week, you can get 50% off standard and premium subscriptions to irishtimes.com. So you can get a full year's standard subscription for €72 Euro in one single upfront payment or it's 96 euro for the premium subscription so it is uh, to be fair extremely good value so to sign up for this offer you can just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash annual underscore offer that's irishtimes.com slash subscribe slash annual underscore offer so that that's going to be available from next monday the 22nd for a week and please do note that this offer is only available in ireland we'll be back after the break to discuss the mother and baby homes and we're back with Jennifer Bray and Jack Horgan-Jones. And Jen, you're writing in today's Irish Times about the redress scheme, which has been announced for uh, mothers and children who had the experience of going through those those institutions. Pretty terrible experience for some of them as well. Um, people aren't happy at the scheme that was announced yesterday, you're reporting. Yeah, so the scheme um, has been delayed many, many times. We know that the Commission of Investigation released their final report in January of this year, um, there was a lot of fallout from that in the preceding months, but or the months following that. Um, and uh, what we saw was the government kind of grappling with that fallout by saying that their job was to implement and create a scheme um, for redress or, as they call it, restorative recognition um, for the survivors of mother and baby homes and that that would be their tangible thing that they could do. Um, to address uh, the, the concerns of those survivors. Um, and they had said that they would have this scheme ready many times uh, before the summer. And then they said it would be immediately after the uh, doll came back from its summer break. That didn't happen. But finally, at last, then, uh, nearly 11 months after the Commission released its report, they announced this scheme yesterday. And what it basically consists of um, are three elements. One, a financial payment. Two, a work-related payment uh, for uh, women who could be considered to have carried out commercial work in some of these institutions, and thirdly, an enhanced medical card. So, you know, when the Commission released its uh, findings and its recommendations, one of the most controversial parts, and there were many, um, was a recommendation that only women who were in these institutions before 1974 and 1973, uh, that they would be the only ones uh, eligible for a redress. The reason why the Commission said this was because around that time, the government introduced an unmarried mother's allowance. And in their view, uh, that was the state recognising the plight of unmarried mothers. Um, obviously, the government took a different view that that doesn't you know, factor in all of the hurt and the suffering of women who were in any of these institutions at any time. So they ignored that recommendation. And the second recommendation of the commission was that women uh, and survivors who were in these homes for more than six months would be entitled to their dress. And they didn't go ahead with that either. So basically, any survivor who was resident in, in any of these homes uh, or should I say institutions, because I know that homes is uh, 
obviously not a term that they would use, um, they will receive the financial payment. And the financial payment will be uh, basically an ascending scale, depending on how long you've been there, whether it's two months or whether it's 10 years, which is the maximum of 65,000. Then there's a work-related payment as well as 60,000 uh, on the same uh, sliding scale. And then there's the enhanced medical card. So that that's kind of the bones of the scheme. But I suppose when we were drilling down into it and looking into it in a little bit more detail, Two things emerge. Firstly, for children who were in these uh, institutions, they will not be entitled to a payment unless they were there for more than six months. Similarly, for boarded out children, the, um, the government has said that while they recognise that many of these people will have, um, they would have been subjected to neglect, they would have been subjected to physical abuse, emotional abuse and sometimes sexual abuse, uh, this would, would not be the case in every single uh, situation. So because they said this is a case by case situation, they pointed to their new scheme, which they announced yesterday as not being able to respond. It's basically an across the board, non-adversarial scheme that which you can qualify for on the basis of proof of residency. So basically what they're saying is the scheme does not accommodate that. Um, and as you can understand, there's been a lot of hurt uh, and a lot of anger expressed by adoptees and by people who were boarded out from these institutions, but also from children who were resident in these institutions for shorter than six months. And that seems to be one of the biggest sticking points. I suppose the second thing is I've mentioned the delay in getting the scheme over the line and how long it took uh, behind the scenes. And and to be fair now to Roderick O'Gorman, the Minister for Children and the officials, you can tell that they did put the thought into the scheme and you can tell they they put in the consultations with survivors and they did all those bits and pieces that they were supposed to, actually bits and pieces and fair, like a, a large body of work, to be fair. Having said that, because it took so long to get this scheme over the line, in the press release yesterday, what they said was that they'd open the scheme. Hopefully, the insinuation would be early 2022. But when Roderick O'Gorman was speaking, he said that he'd hoped that it would be up and running by the end of 2022. And what this raises the spectre of is survivors not receiving payments until 2023 and possibly beyond. Um, and obviously, that's two years after the Commission report, many, many, many years into this process. And that is an extraordinary delay. And when it was put to him, you know, about this delay, he said there would be a prioritisation system for women who were the most elderly uh, and the most vulnerable. When he was asked if there was a possibility to perhaps have emergency payments in the interim for women who perhaps are very sick or perhaps, you know, might not make it to 2023, he said no, basically, because they, they need to have this scheme set up in, in, in legislation. So they are the main sticking points. There are a few other bits and pieces that I can get into, if you like. I suppose the the, the main question is, is this it or is the backlash and the negative reaction, is there any possibility that they, that, that they might go back to any of these elements or is this where we are? I think they will have to go back to a couple of the elements. I mean, they, they will obviously bring in the legislation, publish the, the heads of the bill, all that stuff is ahead of us and that going through the Oireachtas. And I know there are many politicians who will seek to rectify these issues that have emerged in, in the last 24 hours. We still have, you know, certain other other elements to be sorted out in terms of inheritance tax issues for people who may have been uh, boarded out or adopted and inherited the family farm and had to pay taxes that, uh, you know, other children would not have had to pay, sorting out those anomalies for them, like will boarded out children, uh, you know, will they be included in that? Yes, apparently they will be. It looks like they, they will be obviously a big part of that. Um, so they will have to rectify that. And I think there are other different elements of the scheme. So for example, the department estimates that 25% of people who are eligible um, for this scheme, and they, they think that 34,000 survivors will be eligible for payment. 25% of those are abroad. They're in the UK or they're in the US. Um, some of them are adopted out there. Um, and 
what a lot of those survivors have told the government in the past is that they have felt ignored. They haven't felt in the loop. They haven't been aware of what's been going on. So they'll have to tailor a specific communications campaign to make sure that those people know their rights and know that the scheme is being set up and and uh, perhaps that their children do too. I suppose the other element of it then is in terms of your tax, you know, income tax or your social welfare eligibility or your income tax liability here, when you get that payment or, you know, if you get the payment and the work payment and the enhanced medical card, that won't be factored in. But that's not the case for those survivors abroad who live under different, obviously different authorities, different tax systems. So, you know, you would hope that the government would have or begin um, discussions with foreign authorities so that those survivors won't be left short of pocket uh, either. And then, look, there are some really, really, really big elements left in this. And I'm thinking particularly of, there's uh, there's three things I see it. Firstly, um, the when the Commission's report was released, and we talked about this before in the podcast, and you spoke to, um, I, I know, Maeve and Maeve O'Rourke and loads of other people, and they said basically that the survivors were very unhappy with a lot of the recommendations and the tone of the report. Roger O'Gorman committed to bringing in an independent expert to look at their testimony and put them on the record in a different way, in a way that was, you know, that was that would satisfy them. Um, and that would be for part of the formal and the final record of what happened in these institutions. That work is still only in a scoping phase, as far as I'm aware. Um, it'll be a really important job that they get that right uh, for those survivors. Secondly, that they progress and finally, finally bring into um, uh, law the right for adopted people to have access to all of their information, their birth information, um, everything about themselves that's held by the state and other bodies. That's going through the door at the moment. And then thirdly, TUM, um, that they, you know, were seven years waiting for action on TUM. And when they, you know, if they finally can get that legislation over the line and allow for the dignified reburial um, of the remains at TUM, then, you know, I think they will have gone a long way at that stage to addressing the concerns. Yeah, still still plenty to do. I want to touch on one subject before we before we wrap it up today, Jack. The, the Labour Party conference um, happened at the weekend. Used to be quite a significant thing. Third biggest party in the country not the third biggest party in the country anymore. And I would say looking at the reaction to it last weekend, I don't want to be mean about it, but there was a real so what kind of a feel about it. Labour remain stuck on very low numbers uh, in the opinion polls. And they, they just seem to be, some people would argue, irrelevant. They're certainly a lot less relevant than they used to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that most most people in Labour that have been talking to feel that the, uh, the conference went pretty well. They had a nice new logo. <laughs> that seemed to go down well. Um, the they they they're still on. I, I don't know. I'd hesitate to say the crest of a wave, but they're certainly uh, they're pleased with the Dublin Bay South by election. Ivana Batchik has come in, and and apart from attending that function in the Marion, has had a good start to her her dull career, um, and has proven to be everything that they hoped. You know, she's she's articulate and confident, and 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 uh, forthright, and, and a good politician, and all the rest of it. Um, Dublin Bay South. Uh, a reasonable uh, conference and and one one extra good parliamentarian in your dollar ranks doesn't solve any of the the wider secular issues that have affected labor and will continue to affect labor for the coming period um talking to people in the party i mean the the <laughs> there there's kind of two paths that they could go down you know they they become a partner to to Sinn Féin and be part of that kind of change mandate which doesn't necessarily sit with a party that that more traditionally is located within the mainstream and the orthodoxy, albeit in a kind of progressive part of that. Um, or they, they try and become, you know, the 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 leader uh, of a centre-left block, which 
could or centre-left or progressive bloc within the next all, which could actually be fairly substantial. I mean, let's just say for the sake of argument, for the sake of argument, each of the Greens, um, the Social Democrats and Labour win 10 seats and you throw in a clatter of like-minded independents. And that's that's a pretty big voting bloc. I think that, you know, if that is the aim, they first of all have to uh, be a big part of that bloc before they, they stand any chance of leading it. Um, and to do that, I think they have to increase their doll representation. And um, I'm not sure they have the, the relevancy to put on a kind of full court press on that. You know, I'm not sure that their message really cuts through, notwithstanding the fact that they have reasonably capable spokespersons and a, and a leader who is, is guaranteed airtime and knows how to use it. Um, so I think that, that there are fun, more fundamental questions they need to address before they start thinking about themselves as, as partners in government or leaders of any any part of the doll. Um and, you know, I think that they will probably do that. I think their best bet to do that is by identifying, first of all, strategies that allow them to, to, to hold what they have and then correctly identifying the seats that they might win in the next general election and, and tactically and strategically pursuing those effectively. So, you know, the fact that they have a vision, good for them. And, you know, a little bit of wind in the sails, again, good for them. But, you know, they're a long way off where, where they need to be still. And, and that that relevancy question is still outstanding for them, I think. Yeah, I do wonder, Jen. I mean, I'm thinking of your analysis of, of Sinn Féin's prospects at the next election, which you did a couple of, of podcasts ago, and then turning that that lens towards Labour. I mean, a combination of the opinion polls and what I know of the candidates that they have in place or are maybe putting forward, I can't see them doing any better than picking up a couple of seats would be a good result for them the next time out. But that doesn't that doesn't leave them as 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 the leader of a of a major bloc. It just leaves them as one of uh, a number of small parties on the on the left and centre left. And then who knows what the overall landscape is like after that election. Oh, definitely. And um, I wouldn't want to go and do that analysis on the Labour Party, <laughs> who would be a grim piece at this stage in time. And the reason why I say that is, to be fair to them, like I was there on Saturday and it was really slick production. I was really impressed by, like sometimes half the battle is, you know, and the the image that you project uh, outwards into the world. And if you have a ramshackle conference and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it doesn't look great. But they had a really slick production. Everybody looked great. It was there. It was everything was perfectly timed. It was all televised. Um, Alan Kelly's speech was quite good. All of that kind of stuff. But then you kind of had to feel for them because they had all this big production and it was supposed to be their weekend in the sun where they can celebrate. And then bang, Sunday morning, Sunday Times poll comes out and Labour at 3% and Alan Kelly goes on the week in politics and he's supposed to be going on to talk about his party's priorities and how brilliant you know, the future looks for them and instead he gets whacked with this 3%, you know, like, what? how can you say, here are your conditions for going into government in your speech when this poll shows you're only at 3%? Doesn't that mean that you're pretty much irrelevant? Like, these are the questions that are being thrown at him on, you know, his valedictory moment and, and on Sunday. So you, you kind of have to feel for them in that way. Um, and I thought one of the interesting things about their future, uh, that it, something that happened at the conference, which kind of encapsulates the sort of strange place that they're in, just before they moved out of, you know, uh, dealing with their motions, one of the delegates had a motion about how there's an imperative on them to come together with all other left parties and form a common platform, I think was the phrase that was used, which makes sense, um, I suppose. And they talked about that. I think they passed that motion. But then Alan Kelly goes out in a speech and says there's a third option between government, and he didn't name Sinn Féin, but he was basically saying Sinn Féin, uh, third option between government and Sinn Féin, he was saying, you know, the op- other opposition, Sinn Féin, are arrogant. They think that their ascension to power is guaranteed. He says that's not the case. He says the government 
and believe that they have a right to govern and that's their divine entitlement and that's not the case. And Labour are here in the middle as the third option. I feel like it can't be both. Like you can't position yourself as the third option separate to everybody else and then have your delegates, you know, passing motions about a common platform on the left. And I think that shows a strange place that they are in, trying to you sort of distinguish themselves from Sinn Féin, but also at the same time say, you know, we will be part of that left, you know, and we will entertain the spectre of government if our policies are implemented. And it's it's it'll be a tricky one for them, I think, over the over the coming years. So just a last question on that, Jen. We, we've heard an awful lot about the impact of the rise of Sinn Féin on Fianna Fáil. And we discussed recently the potential impact of Sinn Féin on the parties of the further left, the solidarity and people before profit at the next election. Um, we haven't really talked that much about the impact of the rise of Sinn Féin on Labour, but the reality is it's a left-wing vote. There's a lot of there's a lot of um, working-class urban constituencies that previously might have returned a Labour TD in places like like Limerick and Cork and p- parts of Dublin too. Um, so there, Sinn Féin are eating Labour's lunch as well, aren't they? Yeah, they are. They will be, and that will be a feature, I suppose, that will worry them because just like the other left parties, you know, if Sinn Féin run. If next time they manage to run the exact right amount of candidates or certainly more candidates than they did the last time at their higher poll ratings, you can imagine a scenario where they where they eat their lunch for sure. I mean, Labour are interesting in that traditionally in the past they have benefited from transfers and elections from kind of all different parties, Fine Gael and otherwise. Um, so it might not necessarily be the case that the rise of Sinn Féin is, is, is the end of Labour, especially if they manage to position themselves as time goes on, as an alternative to Sinn Féin, should, you know, Sinn Féin experience any dip in, in, in any sense at all. And, you know, we've we've said on the podcast, and it is true to say that this idea of Sinn Féin taking all these seats and becoming the next, and being the next, being the next government in waiting, of course it's not a given. Nothing is a given in politics. You know, we've seen that with the, with the pandemic. But you would have to think that they would be looking at their existing seats and looking at what, what candidates Sinn Féin are running and asking themselves, how are we going to deal with this? We'll leave it there. I'm sure that's a subject that will return over the next while. But thanks to Jen and Jack. Thanks also to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon. Remember, you can mail us with any thoughts and questions at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. Talk to you then. <laughs>